The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Kia ora and welcome to a special summer reissue of The Fold. I picked my three favourite episodes to, to run out while we're away. Uh, the first of these is Derek Cheng, who is the Herald. He's a senior political reporter for The Herald, but he's also an incredibly intrepid mountain climber. And there's a real tension between those two pursuits, and that's really what we explore in this one. So enjoy No mai hoki mai kia the fold e mihi nei ko Duncan Grieve pokuingwa. This is the fold. I'm Duncan Grieve, and this is the second in a pop-up series of my media podcast, which focuses on people who make the media as against those who sort of run it, which has been the focus of uh, the first half of this year. My guest this week is Derek Cheng, who is the deputy political editor at the New Zealand Herald. He works out of the press gallery, and I first met Derek, I think, uh, maybe six months ago when he was in barefoot serving sausages on a wet wet and windy Wellington day alongside Tover O'Brien, and I was like, what's up with him? And I'd been aware of his work for for a while beforehand. I thought he was one of the standouts of the sort of lockdown and aftermath stages of the pandemic in terms of the political dimensions of it. But to be honest, just wearing bare feet and being a great journalist might not have got him (laughs) on the slide because there's a lot of people who have unconventional footwear and a fantastic journalist. It was when I found out that journalism isn't even this man's main thing that I got really interested and then got kind of obsessed when I found out what his main thing is which is climbing, and we'll get into all the crazy stuff that Derek's done uh, on later on the pod. But Derek Chang is, is considers himself like his primary identity is not as a uh, political journalist. It's a it's a dirtbag climber, basically someone who, if they're not climbing, is just scheming their way back to it and will live real lean and mean to climb as long as possible. And I think that's really fascinating for a number of reasons. One is like, you know, we, we kind of have this conception of professions as things that, that dominate your life should be the most important thing in your lives after, you know, family and so on. But for, for Derek, it really feels like he just does it to get enough money so that he can go do this other thing. And 
I think that's that's interesting, particularly because all journalists tend to have some some kind of a little bit of uh, something odd about them. If I'm just being honest, very much self-diagnosed too. But gallery journalists are a real sp- particular type, and for almost all of them, you know, like politicians, the politics has been an abiding obsession for a long, long time. They think about it all the time. That they are exactly where they want to be, and there's nowhere else they want to be. And their interest outside of politics are more politics. And Derek just not being like that is 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 really fascinating to me. And I think it kind of speaks to some aspects of a more liberated work-life balance and the creative economy and a whole bunch more besides. So this is a fun one. We actually recorded it a couple of weeks ago, uh, both Derek and I, very unconventionally for me, and I think probably for him too, suit and tie and and even shoes, which is crazy, uh, on our way to the Voyager Awards where he didn't win, but he was nominated, rightly so. It's a fun listen. Just before we get into it, I want to, as per usual, thank Vodafone for Business for bringing you The Fold. The spinoff runs on Vodafone, all parts of our business, which involves huge files and a need to have our whole office connected 24-7. And it works. And that's just what you need for your business. So check out vodafone.co.nz. This is Derek Chang, Deputy Political Editor of the New Zealand Herald on The Fold. Kia ora, Derek, and welcome to The Fault. Thank you, Duncan. Um, I want to ask what we were just talking about off air, which is what you have against shoes. I don't, ha- I don't have anything against, you know, specifically against shoes. I just think if you ask most people, they'll honestly say they're more comfortable without shoes. Is that not true for you? I mean, that probably is true for me. There's just a powerful social pressure that keeps keeps people's shoes on a lot of the time, which you clearly don't feel. Uh, no, I mean, I also like have a mullet, for example, <laughs> which was bestowed upon me by my flatmate who, on a whim one night, decided to cut my hair and then just put it in the style of her own as she also had a mullet. And I I didn't really have a say in this, nor did I. I mean, I was quite indifferent towards it. So, so I guess if there's social pressure against having mullets, then I'm also immune to that. I feel like social pressure is just not something you feel quite as keenly as the average person. Is this fair? Uh, I haven't really spoken to many average people or done large surveys of them, but, you know, it's, it's probably fair. <laughs> to, to just give a little background, when uh, us, my producer emailed Derek to, um, to request this interview, and I, I'm going to quote, that you said, are you sure you have the right person? Ellipse. I spent most of my adult life as a global climbing bum rather than a diligent and ambitious worker. Which, A, just amazing, uh, but B, I did have the right person, that's essentially why. But just sort of explain your relationship to, to work and, you know, how climbing kind of interacts with that. Uh, well, very broadly, I have, in general, tried to work as least as possible in my adult life. Uh, mainly because, I don't know, if, for me, climbing and travel are amazing activities to do. They provide you with these incredibly intense experiences, enriching experiences that, you know, can border on the transcendent or, or however you want to phrase that. If I ask you what your most memorable experiences in your life are, um, I, I, don't, I don't know what you'd say. For me, it's often like 
climbing up the side of El Cap in Yosemite or going through the mountains of the Bugaboos in Canada or, or something like that rather than sitting at a desk or breaking a great story, which is something I really like too. But, you know, if I'm on my deathbed telling my grandkids the greatest moments of my life, it's probably not among them. So I have generally tried to travel as much as possible and work as least as possible. And, you know, that has consequences. I'm 42. Uh, I don't have the assets or family that most 42-year-olds have, but I have a wealth of experiences, and that's the trade-off. Which I get, and yet the crazy thing is, like, I, I understand all that. What I don't really understand is how... Because you don't have just a sort of an itinerant job that you can dip in and out of. On, on some level, journalism can, can be that if you're skilled enough, and you clearly are. But you are the deputy political editor of The Herald as of a few weeks ago. You work in the press gallery, which is, you know, and we were discussing this before, but, but that is a place where literally, and I, I don't think this is an exaggeration, everyone else who works there, this, that is the thing that they have lusted after for years. It, that is their whole consuming thing. When they're on their deathbed, they will be talking about stories they broke. H how did that happen? And what does it feel like to be somewhat of an outsider in terms of the take it or leave it, in some respects, nature of your, your relationship to your job? Well, I think that lots of... I mean, it's true. It's, just, it's true that the, the, the nature of the job in the press gallery is all-consuming. When I'm in it, it's also all-consuming for me. Um, but that doesn't mean I can't just leave, <laughs> you know. It also makes it more difficult when I come back. I've clearly got large gaps in my press gallery experience. I don't, I don't really have a problem with leaving for large periods of time, though. Like, I've gone through these cycles where uh, I started in the press gallery uh, in 2010. It was, back then, I think more so than now, a highly coveted journalistic uh, ambition and I just kind of fell into it because Patrick Gower worked for the Herald and he went to TV3. Um, and I was in, I just happened to be in New Zealand. I had spent a couple of years in South America and I was on my way back. Um, I had come back to spend a summer in New Zealand, spend some time with a girlfriend who I hadn't seen for some time um, and go to a friend's wedding. And while I was there, Patrick left and I, was, and I was called and said, do you want this job? And yeah, back then I think those positions were more rare and um and I thought as I don't know maybe kind of out of character I thought I should take it but then since then I've worked stints and like the first stint was a couple of years and then I left indefinitely and then I've just come back with kind of election cycles and done like short contracts through the 2014 election I did three months and then the 2017 election I did five months and in between I've just kind of traveled around and and when I'm away from it, I don't miss it, i got to say. <laughs> this is my longest work stint currently that I've ever had, and there were a couple of reasons for that, which we can go into later. How long is it? Um, I guess it's about two and a half years, but caveated by taking both summers off. And it's because I was in a quite a severe accident in the US, and... Uh, there was no point in continuing my itinerant traveling lifestyle, so I thought I'd come back to New Zealand and, you know, partake in ACC, having paid all ACC levels all my life and not really um, engaged or needed the health system at any at any time. 
And then last year, I was I was also wanting to leave, uh, having recovered from my injuries sufficiently, uh, and then the pandemic hit. So. so I want to talk about the pandemic because I think it was, in some respects, certainly the the time when I became really aware of your work as a journalist and sort of galvanised you uh, out of your somewhat indifference towards this really coveted job that you have. But tell me about this accident, because I, I got it described to me third-hand, admittedly, as you almost dying. Do you mind going into it a bit? No, not at all. I mean, it was definitely uh, something that happened where I could have died. I was trying to traverse a mountain range in California. Uh, this will sound quite out there for non-climbers, but I was by myself. I was in the minarets. I was traversing or attempting to traverse maybe a dozen mountains of granite um, of, you know, fairly easy but technical terrain. Uh, And I don't really know what happened. Uh, I had had also done this before in various other parts of the High Sierra. Um, And I was on fourth-class terrain, which uh, to a climber is like, technical more technical hiking and something happened and then I woke up on a ledge and I had I was covered in blood uh, I'd broken 10 bones mostly in my face but also in my neck and my back I'd ruptured some ligaments I'd clearly just fallen off something or been hit by something um, and I'd also had the convenience of head trauma amnesia so I didn't I had no recollection of where I had been how far I'd fallen uh, but I was ropeless and alone um, and just happened to fall on a ledge. Was knocked out for a bit, came to, was completely unaware of the severity of my injuries, kind of stood up, weighted both my legs, thought, okay, I'm fine. Um, clearly I'm bleeding and something's happened, so I should probably go down. And then well, I was like 500 metres up a face and then had to down climb to the nearest couloir and then... Uh, Abseil down the couloir like five or six times. I had a rope with me and some climbing gear, so I was able to do that. And then I had to walk out to the start of the trail where my vehicle was parked. Um, and that, if I remember, was about 12k or so. Anyway, my brain was bleeding and I was quite delirious. Um, and it took me about 24 hours to get out, but I ended up getting out and then showed up at the hospital. Um, they asked me <laughs> how I was feeling and whether I thought I'd broken anything. And I said, I'm not really in any severe pain and I don't think I've broken anything. And they basically scanned me and said, you're really screwed and you need to, we can't treat your brain injury here. We have to fly you to a different hospital and, and all that happened. And then I had to have facial reconstructive surgery. A- and my brain bleed just kind of dissipated, right? Which is just total roll of the dice thing because many people have brain injuries and they go south and then they have like altered personalities or you know struggle with just everyday activities and mind just kind of you know disappeared that's some story because i have this sort of you know a very like sedentary person's fascination with climbing like free solo is one of my favorite documentaries you mentioned old cat before is the sort of you describe yourself as a dirtbag climber? Could you sort of defi- de- define that, and then just sort of describe what the t- particular sort of type of climbing you do is? Like, is is being sort of alone and unroped in tr- technical situations a not uncommon reality for you? Uh, it's something that I've become more familiar with as I've uh, become a more competent climber. 
And climbing has so many different disciplines. Like you can climb with a rope, you can climb on bolts, you can climb without bolts, and have different gear that you uh, that you use for safety. You can climb big walls, like in free solo. You can climb in the mountains, or you can climb roadside. A dirtbag climber is just essentially someone who is obsessed with the activity to the point where um, they just turn their back on everything else and just go and climb. And you know that will often take them to different parts of the world. Um, and they will try to prolong that climb time for as much as possible and even resort to activities such as dumpster diving or uh, other things to make every penny stretch as much as possible. Like eating people's leftovers after they've left the restaurant kind of thing. <laughs> Do you, did you find that the fall changed your relationship with climbing you've just come you know literally flown in from fjordland right now so which i assume was you were there to climb did, did it take you a while to to get back on the horse or you did you know even as you were horrifically injured that uh, as, as soon as it healed you were back well it had given me so much so i always wanted to go back to it if possible i didn't know that i would be able to uh and i was I wasn't able to climb for at least sort of 18 months while various parts of my body healed. Uh, But yeah, it was always something that I wanted to go back to if possible. And I'd also, as I think I previously said, had the convenience of the head trauma amnesia. So, you know, I didn't have any PTSD around uh, being high up, suddenly being, you know, terrified of heights or... So lucky. Am I going to break my face again? Um, it was just a, a question of whether my body would be able to do that thing, that sort of activity again. Uh, and luckily, I've been able to. So that, that is your kind of, your true love, essentially. And you've got this deeply unconventional thing of using political journalism to, to fund it. You do you. This long stint that you've had, and, and I do like my job. I just want to say, you know. <laughs> I, I don't think you could do your job if you didn't. But yeah. it's just being alone amongst your peers in terms of it not being your your favorite thing is is, is fascinating to me. Do you anticipate it always being that that way, or has this long stint kind of changed your relationship to it a bit? And especially covering such an extraordinarily fascinating period in our political and. Yeah, just just history full stop. And it has definitely changed. Like like I said before, it is an all-consuming job, but I have sort of been as indifferent to it as much as I can be. Like I'd leave the office and just kind of switch off and, you know, not sort of read political news over the weekend and just go away or whatever. Um, The pandemic really changed all that. Uh, For some reason, I just kind of fell into this default hero position of being the, the main COVID reporter. And uh, I felt like I had a really good understanding of what was going on at the at the beginning, uh, you know, of the lockdown, um, and that made me a lot more invested in the work. You know, I felt I was like having a day off, and uh, the government's making this decision tomorrow, and we should really have a, an article explaining what all the major factors are. And I think I'm probably the best person to write it, so it should be me, even though it's my day off. And it was kind of That's, a very strange feeling for me to be more invested in my work and then offer to work on my days off. Not an unwelcome one, but yeah, uh, new. 
a, a, a definitely a, a new a new a new take on work, and that has kind of continued, even though I've like taken the summers off, to the point where I am more invested in my work and less indifferent. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there was a, a particular. It was I don't know how you'd describe it. It was a sort of a long piece of analysis that seemed to. And I I think it was inside April or May of last year. And it was during that quite tricky to navigate period where the government was just so overwhelmingly popular because of the success of the big thing that they were doing, but that also information was being very tightly controlled and it it felt very heavily managed. And, uh, And there were these clear holes that you know that were in both the, the big story and that that the virus could slip through essentially and and it felt like you sort of gathered that together in, in one piece last year what what do you sort of remember about that that period and why do you think you became that COVID reporter because it could have been any one of a number of people at the at the Herald and it seemed to have that effect on a few different reporters at different organizations uh, I don't really know why it became me <laughs> I think um, but I, as I said before I think I also felt more obliged to be that person because I felt I had a really good understanding of of the virus and how it behaved and the government response to it um, I don't know I think I wrote a number of pieces during that time when the government was really popular and we were winning but there were definitely gaps in our knowledge there was definitely um, times when we were told everything was fine, but there was not really the information to back it up. We would, for example, when we were told that everyone was going to get tested before they were allowed to leave MIQ, and that clearly didn't happen. And you know, um, we were told, um, yeah, and to an extent that that still happens a lot. You know, when we were given the vaccine rollout data earlier this year, when we were given this graph, which turned out to be completely meaningless or even deceptive because it showed um, how we were supposed to be tracking, but it was actually nowhere, it had no resemblance whatsoever to what the DHBs were planning. So, in that sense, it was not just not useful, but actually deceptive. Yeah, I can't really explain why uh, I dove into all that stuff other than I felt like I should. (laughs) Was it a sort of strange time to be a reporter in that there probably has never been and may may well never be a a government as popular during a very specific time as that? And you, as the the gallery, were practising the sort of under-the-hood parts of your job in public on on news conferences and and so on and the act of doing your jobs of 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 finding the kinds of gaps which ultimately there was a you know a very close correlation between journalists like yourself uh michael mora um uh, Kristen at one when news i'm forgetting her surname it's terrible um you know there, there were just a few of you who were just regularly finding and, and pointing to to these holes and things would get done you know so it was you could view it as this very patriotic act and i think it should be seen as 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 in that way and yet the public's response to, to seeing those you know exchanges was was overwhelmingly negative and tover obviously bore a huge brunt of that you know how how has there's actually some victoria university uh postdoc student who's actually looking at that very question and uh, I and some other colleagues in the press gallery have been interviewed about that. So, you know, what it was like to be in those press conferences, to have the public 
being able to listen in um, with not necessarily the kind of understanding of media that would that would help to understand what was going on in those press conferences. And obviously there were massive uh, online backlashes on social media or otherwise. I don't know, I think as a journalist you really felt the sense of, of how historic everything was. And, you know, no matter how indifferent you may have been in the past, if you're not wanting to be in that room, then you're in the wrong profession, right? So you he definitely had a sense of the occasion and that was that gave greater impetus to really put the government under scrutiny and do your job as best as you could. And that That's, I think, what many of us in the press gallery felt, regardless of whatever online backlash happened. And I wrote many pieces praising the government for being agile and decisive and, like, switching to lockdown from a suppression strategy early on, you know. And I obviously wrote many pieces um, trying to see where our weaknesses were as well. And I got a lot of emails. <laughs> but that's part of the job is you get all this kind of feedback. And Do you engage? Uh, I have engaged a few times, but mostly on a comedic level. Like some people will say, you're not a patriot, and I'll write back and say, well, I, I really like fish and chips, <laughs> for example, you know. And I have worn stubbies and jandals and whatever. So jandals. What is Those your are <laughs> shoes on some level, Derek? <laughs> I, I, arguable. arguable. That's true. They're an edge case. Um, how is it important was the sort of support of your colleagues? I mean, you work with two absolute legends of the gallery, and Claire Trevet and and Audrey Young. You know, what was the the, the fact that you all understood the mechanics of what was going on in a way that 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 those. Um, those who questioned your patriotism, despite your love of fish and chips, uh, you know that 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 was was that super helpful. They are complete legends of the game, and um, just as in you know, I'm actually nominated for a Voyager tonight as in the in the columnist category, and I'm not. I've never been a columnist, and the pandemic kind of made me a columnist. I don't really feel like I am a columnist because I've only ever written columns about the pandemic, but. Audrey and Claire are, you know, you know, their incomparable wisdom and their critical eyes over, over my work has, you know, has been such uh, a positive and powerful influence on any work I've ever done. So, you know, um, they have reputations and they are well deserved. So. I'm just about to, to call time and we're both going to scuttle off to the town hall and, and have a time and good good luck to you for, for tonight because, you know, th- those columns, I, I remember them and, and being kind of awed by the the power and just the way that they were constructed. I think you should win. Well, but, it makes one of us. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what's, what's next? Because at some point, travel will become less sketchy and... The dirtbag life will will become more plausible. Do you, do you think that you might sort of settle into a, a different kind of rhythm that is more summers off, which you can do uh, in the gallery to, to a certain extent. The whole of politics does in a way, or, or or is it ultimately when when the world starts to reopen that your your sort of the the peripatetic lifestyle will come back? Well, how the world reopens is a huge question mark, right? And. Um, it remains to be seen what transpires there, but yes, I mean, I've, I've, I've 
lived my life a certain way. I've got no regrets about that. And there are many other places I want to go. And it was quite funny because when I did get this new title of Claire's chief servant. Um, <laughs> you used another word before we got on air. <laughs> I did. I mean, we like to refer to it as, as Claire's bitch, which is not inaccurate. Um, then, you know, when I, when I got that title... I got all these messages of, of congratulations, which were um, which were great, but they were also accompanied by messages of, oh, it's great to hear you're sticking around. And I, there was no sort of, I didn't really see it as any sort of obligation to stick around. <laughs> it was just something that happened. And um, I don't tend to make plans beyond next week, but, you know, I, I do wish to resume my um, global itinerant lifestyle at some point. How how that will happen, you know, is still an open question. Well, uh, while while we have you, it's it's an absolute pleasure to read you. And once again, good good luck for tonight, Derek. Thanks so much for coming on the fold. Thank you, thank you, Doug. Kia ora e te iwi. Butler here, podcast manager at the Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.